Thank you to Lindsay for reading and to Emmanuel for that beautiful prayer. Um, Asbury sends people to the nations, but when the nations come to Asbury, we are blessed in an incredible way. And we thank you for that this morning. And for you who are on your way somehow to Thanksgiving next week through the path of classes and many assignments that possibly stand in your way, um, uh, bless you this morning. I know you're eager to be uh, where you're not yet, um, but this morning God has a word for you where you are. Uh, Thanksgiving week in my family always includes a celebration of my grandmother's birthday. And tomorrow is my grandmother's 97th birthday. Um, she is the kind of grandmother who runs circles around the rest of us in our family. Uh, she's extremely active. Uh, into her 90s, she lived alone in her home of 50 years. And just until two years ago, she lived alone. Uh, when two years ago, she moved into an independent living facility. She reminds us often that it's independent. Where she still runs circles around all of us, just using a walker. Uh, this week, she celebrated her birthday by uh, getting a ride to her church, to her women's circle, where she delivered the devotional, 97 years old. Uh, this past summer, though, um, we were pretty concerned about her. She had a stroke in her independent living facility, and I would say that the circumstances surrounding that day um, qualify as an actual miracle in my book. See, the symptoms of that stroke began in the morning on a Thursday. And on any other day of the week, no one would have known that anything was wrong because she usually handles her independent living very well, thank you, until dinner time when she goes down to the dining hall for dinner. Any other day of the week, no one would have known that she was missing until dinner time. But this happened to be Thursday. And of all the days for her to have a stroke, Thursday is the day that she goes to the beauty parlor. The day where she gets her hair washed and set in the same chair that she's sat in for decades. And this occasion, Thursdays, they are set in stone. My entire life we have planned family events around Thursdays because her hair appointment is immovable, much like her hair. <laughs> and this particular Thursday, when she didn't come down to the desk on the first floor for her ride, they knew something must be wrong. So they sent someone to check on her. And the person who came to her apartment talked to her for a minute and then said to her, Mrs. Harlan, I think you're having a stroke and I'm going to call an ambulance. And at that point, her symptoms were very mild, but in the ambulance, on the way to the hospital, um, more symptoms developed. Things got a lot more dangerous for her. And when she arrived at the hospital, things didn't look so good. The thing is that in the hospital, I mean in the ambulance, on the way to the hospital, they were also able to administer this miracle drug that they've developed for people in the process of having a stroke. That when delivered early enough can actually reverse the symptoms, the effects of the stroke. And by dinner time that Thursday, all of the symptoms that had come on in the ambulance had been reversed. And she was asking, what is the big deal? 
and why she was still there on Thursday and not at her hair appointment. It was Thursday, for goodness sake. Now, any other day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, any other day of the week, no one would have known that anything was wrong until dinner time. Only on Thursday would she have received the immediate help that she did and the life-saving intervention that she did. That's, that's an amazing circumstance to me. The timing that led to her healing was so specific. God can even use a standing hair appointment to bless us. And in the hospital, when her initial symptoms began to subside, they, they kept checking on her. They kept insisting that she stay longer than she thought was necessary. And when she complained that they should have let her go home already, they explained that her heart was beating at an extremely rapid rate and that it was in something called AFib, uh, a rhythm or an off rhythm, the irregularity of which had actually caused the clot that had led to the stroke in the first place. And when they asked her why they wouldn't just let her go home, they said, Mrs. Harlan, you don't just have a head problem. You have a heart problem. And unless we take care of your heart, this is just going to keep happening. In life with Christ, it is possible to have a problem that presents as a head problem, a ministry problem, a schoolwork problem, a roommate problem, a parenting problem, some kinds of problems that we try to use our heads to solve when it turns out there's actually a heart problem behind them. Jonah had a heart problem. The call of God came to Jonah, giving him his very first appointment to go to Nineveh and proclaim the judgment of God. And when the Lord calls you to Nineveh, what do you do? You go to Joppa instead. From Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now notice that he went down to Joppa first. Joppa is mentioned just so briefly here. Um, Joppa is a, a beautiful place, at least someone thought so, because the word Joppa comes from the Hebrew word for beautiful. It's on the Mediterranean coast around where the modern city of Tel Aviv stands today. And people usually talk about Jonah's running away. When they talk about it, they talk about him fleeing the call to Nineveh by going to Tarshish. But the truth is, he never made it to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, the Bible says, to the port city to catch a boat to Tarshish. So while Jonah was trying to get to Tarshish, a place that was actually as far in the opposite direction of Nineveh as he could get, he never actually got there. He ended up with a layover in Joppa instead. Joppa is the last place where Jonah's feet touched dry ground. So Joppa is a turning point. It's the last place that he could have turned and headed to Nineveh, to obedience, 
to faithfulness, to God's calling. Joppa is Jonah's last chance to make God his first choice and not his last resort. Jonah detested the cruel and ruthless Ninevites. And so when that call came, I'm sure he thought, Lord, anywhere but Nineveh. And and I wonder, had Jonah just grown up hearing stories of their cruelty? Had he lost loved ones or family members at their hands? Had he himself experienced the cruelty of the Ninevites? He clearly believed that they were beyond saving. And when we start to believe that there are some beyond hope or beyond God's grace, that's really the place of our danger, the place where we're in danger of being without hope ourselves. The last thing Jonah wanted to do was head east and preach to Nineveh. And so he goes down to Joppa and he gets on a ship and he heads west. And then in the midst of a great storm, the pagan sailors throw him overboard just in an attempt to appease any god, any god they might appease uh, to save themselves from this storm. And the storm immediately abates And so the sailors know this God, this must be the real God. And they immediately begin praying to Yahweh. A good sign that God's power is going to win out in this story is when even the pagans who throw someone overboard to their death to save their own lives end up worshiping the one true God. For them, it's a happy ending. But as you know, the roller coaster isn't yet over for Jonah. It's only just begun. This is his Well, it's his vacation Bible school moment. I mean, let's just say it. It's his coloring page in the Bible stories coloring book moment when a God-ordained fish swallows him up and puts him in a holding pattern, a kind of a holy timeout, giving him time to think about what he has done, not not just for a day not just for two days, but three whole days. And and let's just say from observation about this personality that it's possible that Jonah was just that stubborn. You know, if after one day in the belly of a fish, you say to yourself, oh no, I'm good. I won't be going to Nineveh. After two days in the belly of a fish, you say to yourself, no, Lord, I think I'll be comfortable right here. But it takes three days, three days to convince you, no, I've had enough. And so finally, after three days, Jonah is spit up on dry land. I can just picture Jonah lying there, covered in fish goo on the shore, wondering wondering if he should be glad he survived or not. And then the voice of the Lord, that ever-persistent voice, comes again. And what does God say to Jonah, laid out in fish goo? Get up. Arise, God says, get up and go to Nineveh. And not out of any changed heart, not out of any encouraged love or faithfulness, but just because, you know, who really wants to see what's next on God's playlist after a fish? Jonah agrees. And he finally heads to Nineveh. He goes and proclaims half-heartedly God's message to Nineveh. He walks through this great city and listen to the inspiring message that he delivers there. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That, that's the great message of Jonah. It's like the half-hearted gospel of bad news. I mean, didn't Jonah take a preaching class? 
an evangelism class, an intercultural studies class, any, any class would have helped Jonah with the half-hearted gospel of bad news. There are clearly more effective strategies than telling people without any love behind it that they will be wiped out in 40 days. But you know, maybe not. I mean, it turns out to be an incredibly effective strategy, doesn't it? Because the entire city actually repents. The word gets to the king, and he calls for a citywide fast and repentance. Even the city's animals are fasting. You know the people have turned when even the dogs are fasting. And God, of course, shows his mercy and grace, just as Jonah was afraid that he would. And Nineveh is spared, and everyone rejoices except Jonah. While his mission is successful, Jonah sulks to the end of his story um, as if he wished his life were ending. And we find at the end of the story he is even more rebellious, more unfaithful, more bitter, more angry at God for showing mercy and compassion through his ministry than he was before. Jonah has a heart problem. He can hold on to offense at other people's sins, even when God doesn't hold on to it. And in the end, he's ticked off not just at the Ninevites, but he's ticked off at the very nature of God. And what fascinates me about this story is just how ineffective Jonah is and just how powerful God is that it doesn't matter that Jonah is ineffective. I mean, does anybody else ever get nervous that they'll mess up this whole ministry thing? Anybody have any feelings of inadequacy or lack or doubt in themselves? It's just, is it just me? No, you too. Okay, good. Um, well, no worries anymore. I mean, Jonah proves that God can and will use anyone. He is the prophet who succeeds in spite of himself and in spite of his lack of faithfulness to God's desires. He reminds me of a child who might say to their parents, you can't make me. And, and then realizing that's not actually true, responds, well, you, can't make me, you can make me, but you can't make me like it. Jonah is the most effective, reluctant prophet that I know. Um, recently, I got to hear a story of a modern reluctant prophet, uh, one that delivered the good news in spite of themselves. I got to hear a testimony delivered by one of our Asbury students, our own Molly Yee, and she shared that testimony on a retreat called President's Retreat that Dr. Tennant hosts for people that are friends of the seminary. Uh, Tammy Cessna, who's our director of alumni, interviewed Molly and her husband, Richie. And I want to show you a part of that interview, a video of what we heard from them that day, because I think it illustrates this powerful God that works in spite of people. Let's see this short clip from Molly's testimony. I met them uh, last, a couple of years ago when they first arrived. They had only been in the country for about, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And we took them down to Sims Drugstore. We have an old-fashioned drugstore that you can get soda fountain drinks. And we were down there setting up at the little stools, you know, at, at the t table there. And they happened to sit by me. And I have a brother in China, so I was very intrigued by their story. Um, my brother's been there for several years, so I wanted to get to know a little bit more. And I, I asked Molly, and I'm, I'm going to let her tell the story to relive it for you, because I was so excited after I heard their story. We just wanted to share it with you. But um, I asked Molly, I said, do you guys have, or are you part of the underground church? Did you have Christian in, Christians in your family? And, and what do you say to that? 
Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have any other Christians in our families. Both of us, uh, we are the only Christians. Yeah. So, how did you find about Jesus? How did you find him? Um, um, I was born in a uh, in a small town in southern part of China, uh, where it is very close to Hong Kong. Maybe about four hours drive to Hong Kong. So we speak Cantonese also, and um, but I went to Beijing for college and met my husband. And when I went to Beijing for college, um, when I was in my second year of the college, I took a class and. It was Western cultural introduction. And then the professor, he is not a Christian, but he loves Western cultural. And he also loves individualism and he loves freedom. And he talks lots, lots about Western countries. And then he also introduces Christianity and he recognized that Christianity is the foundation of Western culture. So I was like, wow, the Western culture, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like it's many stuff, it's very nice. And the foundation is Christianity is a religion. It's unbelievable for me at that time. And I start to think more about it um, rationally and then more spiritually and um, just one class, one specific class, I was sitting, I was a good student, so I was sitting at the, at the first row, the front row. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I was listening, um, just like normal classes, I, I'm listening to the teacher, to the professor, and then um, that class uh, was specifically about Christianity, and he even introduced um, the doctrine of the cross. And he said, um, that's how Christians believe. They believe that um, Christ, Jesus, has died for them um, on the cross for their sins. And um, so to redeem um, his people. And I was sitting at the front row, and I was so touched by the salvation story. And that was actually not my first time to hear this story, because... The cross, obviously, I know the cross. I've, I've seen the cross. I've been to the church. It has been um, very attractive for me. So this is not the first time I, I heard it. But at that class, at that moment, I was so touched. I was so caught by God's spirit. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I I cannot resist your love. I cannot resist your grace anymore. I'm going to call you my God. Yeah, and, and I, I was sitting at the front row, and I cannot control my, my tears, so I was just covering my face. I don't want the professor to see me like that. So I just covered my face, and I was, I was crying, and I, I was so deeply touched by God's love for me on the cross, and that's how I became a Christian. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, through a non-Christian. A, a non-Christian <laughs> teaching yeah. at a secular school in Beijing, China. Yes. And Molly hears about the cross. Yeah. And her heart was strangely warmed on the front row. Can God use anyone? 
even a reluctant prophet, even a prophet who doesn't believe themselves. But if you've ever wondered if God can actually use you, you can rest assured that he can and he will. God can use anything and anyone. I mean, listen, friends, we get so bound up in the idea that what is going to make a difference in ministry is going to be our training, our knowledge, our gifts, our skills, that we forget that what, what matters most is the power of God, that God's not dependent on us. It's actually the other way around. A pastor named Scott Walker put it this way. This is in a book about um, the Apostle Peter. He says, perhaps the lesson we must learn from the scene sounds odd, even heretical on first hearing. This lesson is the simple fact that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. That God's ability to act is not dependent on our ability to believe. That God can release prisoners from bondage even when we are filled with doubt and despair. I'm not saying, he says, I'm not saying that God is not aided by our prayers and attitudes of faithfulness. I'm certain that he is, but God is not limited by our human frailty and will not be bound by our human weakness. For God raised Jesus from the dead when not a single disciple expected it, anticipated it, hoped for it, or prayed for it. God is a God who surprises us with joy, even in the midst of doubt, cynicism, and disbelief. I'm thankful that we have seminaries and strategies and degree plans and networks and denominations. But if every single one of them crumbled into the sea tomorrow, would God be left without resources? Would his plans for the full restoration of his creation falter? Jonah's disobedience caused a whole ship of sailors to begin worshiping the Lord. His half-hearted delivery of a gospel of bad news brought repentance to a whole city. An atheist professor can bring us Molly Yee surrendered to the cross. If we fail to praise him, we're told, God will just use the rocks. Even the rocks can cry out, but but don't you think he'd rather use vocal cords? Um, Don't you think he'd rather use human vessels filled with his Holy Spirit than one who tells the truth without believing it? If God has to choose between having the right message in your head and having your whole heart, don't you think he wants both? And what would that look like? Well, another Joppa story. Somewhere around 800 years after Jonah, God gets another chance to show us just what he can do with a reluctant prophet. One day, a man named Cornelius, a a Gentile, a Roman centurion, has a vision. From Acts 10, just before the passage that Lindsay read for us, from Acts 10, beginning with verse 3, one day, at about 3 in the afternoon, Cornelius had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius... And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. These men are sent to summon Peter, 
a Jew on behalf of Cornelius, a Gentile. Peter's not supposed to meet with Gentiles or eat with them or stay in their homes. And to make matters even more tricky, this man, Cornelius, who, who is sending people after Peter to come to his house in Caesarea, uh, this man is a Roman centurion. And, and Peter has very recently witnessed Romans, centurions even, execute his rabbi Jesus. So coming to Cornelius's house, this is not a very attractive offer. And where is Peter when he is supposed to receive the word to come to Cornelius's house? He's on a rooftop where? He's in Joppa. Joppa the beautiful. He is on a rooftop where he can probably look and see the seaport where Jonah caught the boat to Tarshish. Um, once again, there's a layover in Joppa that's an occasion for a turning point and the location of a life-changing choice. Not, a choice not just for the, the target population, those Gentiles who will hear the word, but a turning point, again, for a reluctant preacher of the word as well. And, and maybe the reason that God keeps trying to send reluctant insiders to repugnant outsiders is that he's not just after changing the outsiders, but for fixing the heart problems of the insiders as well. And while Cornelius's men are on their way to Peter, Peter's on the roof of this house in Joppa looking over the seaport when he receives a vision. What God has called clean, how dare you call unclean, Peter? Um, and this vision happens not once, not twice, but for the most recalcitrant person, it happens three times. And if the connection wasn't strong enough already, three times in the vision, three days in the fish, once Peter hears it, the voice of the Lord says to him exactly what it said to Jonah covered in fish guts. Get up. Get up. Arise and go. The people that God wants to speak to are ahead of you. And so when Cornelius' men arrive, timed exactly at that moment that Peter's vision finally finishes, they they come with a call to eat and fellowship and share the good news with the Gentiles. The people Peter has been taught are beyond God's reach. Standing on that rooftop, Peter, Peter, also known as Simon, son of Jonah, gets his calling to go. And again, again, there's a place of a choice for the prophet. Peter's confirmation comes when these Gentiles that he speaks to in Caesarea receive the same Holy Spirit that he and the others received on the place of Pentecost. And Peter is convinced. And through him, the church begins to spread through the Gentiles. So why, why talk about Joppa? I mean, Joppa isn't Nineveh. It's not Caesarea. It's not the destination that God is calling people to go. But both Jonah and Peter face a turning point at Joppa. Joppa is the place where they have a chance to pause, to listen to the word of the Lord, and decide what they will do in response. Joppa is an in-between place. It's a place between where you hear the calling of God and where you go to fulfill it. Anybody in Joppa right now? 
Joppa is a place to give your heart to God's will so that your feet will move in God's direction and your life will be given God's purpose. Joppa is Abram and Sarai going to a land that God will show them. Joppa is fishermen at nets hearing the words, follow me. Joshua, Joppa is Joshua at the promised land saying, choose this day whom you will serve. Joppa is Mary saying, may it be done to me a servant of the Lord. Joppa isn't a place that you stay. It's just a place for a layover. I mean, you've had layovers, right? Layovers are terrible. When you can't get a direct flight and so you have to stop in a city you don't want to go to on a way to another. Um, layovers are the places where good trips go bad. Layovers are places of delays and lost luggage. Layovers are those airports that you walk through past all those other gates, seeing flights taking off for much more appealing places, I mean, exotic places, warm places, places that are actual destinations, places that are much more attractive than where you've been called to go. And the thought sometimes occurs to you walking past all those other gates Maybe I could just hop a different plane. Maybe I don't really need to follow the path laid out before me. With all of those exciting destinations, why would you send me to Nineveh, Lord? Why take me to Caesarea, to the Gentiles, to the rural church, to the urban jungle, to the filthy poor? to the filthy rich, to the mission field, to the mentally ill, to the shattered denomination, to the church in crisis, to those people I thought I left behind, or, or those people I don't even know. Why, Lord? Why would you put me on a flight headed to them? Because I love them, he says. Why would you call unclean any destination that I have made, any people that I have made, any calling that I've spoken over you? Joppa's one tough place for a layover. Most of the toughest places in ministry that you will face are not caused by lack of education. You don't have a head problem, Mrs. Harlan. You have a heart problem. And until we get it fixed, this thing is not going to sort itself out. What happens to your heart during a layover in Joppa will determine the direction of your whole ministry. It's a good place to catch a boat going a different way. But it's also a good place to get your heart shocked back into rhythm with God's heart and to know the destination that is blessed by him. Because if not, you can pull a Jonah. You can, you can follow God's calling and obey his voice without ever really surrendering your heart. And surrendering means loving those who God loves, falling in love with Nineveh, with the destination and the people and the God who says, arise, get up, let's go together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.